0: Hey everybody, you are listening to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast, where we will be tackling real financial issues so women can eliminate fear and take charge of their lives. I am your host, Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. So let's get to it. The number then was
1: that white people had $141,000 in wealth and black families had about 11,000 and this is including the wealthiest wealthiest that you could think of right and on both sides of the equation so there's you know I like to say okay it's p diddy and all my cousins (laughs) exactly right and still the number lays out to this disparity between you know almost 13 times 14 times more than the other
0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. I'm super excited about our guest, Jessica Norwood, because she is a very accomplished woman that is going to discuss many, many topics with us today. Um, so let me give you a little bit of a bio about Jessica before I introduce her. She was named to Essence Magazine's 50 Entrepreneurs to Watch list. She is the author of a book that I believe is coming out in October 2023 called Believe in You Money. I think I got that right. And in addition to that, she's an investor, an artist, and a philanthropist. The list goes on and on. She's also the founder and CEO of Runway, which she leads alongside with some other very powerful women of color who are committed to resourcing black founders by providing startup capital and nurturing their ongoing success. So I'm not exactly sure when Jessica sleeps, but she's out there doing a lot of things. In addition to all of that, she's very involved and has been recognized for her financial activism and her commitment to leadership and learning. She is the winner of the prestigious Nathan Cummings Foundation Fellowship, Center for Economic Democracy Fellow, Just Economy Institute's Integrated Capital Fellowship, Common Future Fellow for Local Economies, and a lifelong fellow of the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. And she also has this really cool thing where she was the Social Change Fellow of the Hip-Hop Archive at the Hutchins Center of Harvard University. So one other accolade here we have an honor is she is a former board member of the famed Highlander Research and Education Center, which is the same place to train Dr. King. So all I can say is she's been profiled on NPR, Bloomberg, and in Essence Magazine, Next City, Fast Company, and Conscious Company. So this is a lady who has a lot, a lot of accomplishments, and so she is well-situated to pine on many topics and also to give us some vision into what it is like for minorities to kind of you know to navigate the systemic racism that we have in our financial system. Her book is called Believe in You Money: What would the Economy look like if it loved black people? And I think that's an awesome title and I also uh, know she is the co-host of Road to Repair, which is a podcast so you can check her out on that and we'll get to that at the end of the podcast. So Jessica, welcome. When do you sleep, girl? I don't sleep. Kimberly, thank you so much for having me
1: on this fantastic podcast. I have been looking forward to our conversation all week long. And this is my first conversation since the book is coming out October 10th. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to be sharing more and kind of venturing out of my little hole where I do, you know, doing all of this work, working away and get to talk to people about some of the things that I've been working on for all of these years. So this feels Really wonderful. And while I don't sleep much, I feel extremely rested and ready to go. So,
0: I mean, I've kind of listed all of your many accomplishments and all the things that you've been involved in and are currently involved in, but just give us a little snippet of your journey as to how Jessica Norwood is the Jessica Norwood of today. And I know that you're joining us from Jamaica. So, how are you? in Jamaica, and that's your new home, I believe. Yeah. Our listeners like to hear a little bit about about you and what motivated you to come to the point where you're at now, because you're working on a lot of different things that are very important. So, yeah, um, I am
1: in Jamaica right now. And um, right around the time of the pandemic is when I made the move to include Jamaica as, you know, a place for me. I just, I love the people. I love the culture. And um, I, I like, where they are in the evolution of thinking about what it means to really build their country up more economically, where they're going as a country that had been colonized by um, by the British, so they're at a similar pe- place. And we don't think about Black Americans um, as a, at a in a similar place as a place like a Jamaica or a Suriname or a Ghana, where you have these colonial empire powers happening in these areas. And then in the 60s, they start to leave out of those areas. In the same 60s that we have the civil rights movement happening in America. So we're all around the same place or so of like, well, what does it mean to be inside of an economy? What does it mean to be growing? Do we have access to the same kinds of systems and so forth? So I love Jamaica for that. And I, I, I love thinking about where we are as a group of people, as a country, as a world, but where Black creatives and innovators are on this spectrum as far as getting their ideas, getting their work out into mainstream global economy. Where are we at on that trajectory? And so I come from originally uh, from Alabama. And if you hear a little bit of twang, that's where that comes from comes from, um, from Alabama in in Mobile on the Gulf uh, Coast. And people forget that there is a body of water down there that we could get access to. So I grew up right on the water. I love the water. And Jamaica speaks to that part of me as well. Um, I'm definitely a beach person and a tropical person. Any place warm, you know. I'm with you you on that
0: 100%. Right. Well, yeah, because you
1: live in, you've got some great places that are warm I mean, the only problem out
0: here is the water is cold. So that's a real downer. So maybe one day I, I too will move super sunny and
1: incredible though. You have some pretty, pretty days there. So yeah, I grew up and I'm, I'm, I am the daughter of entrepreneurs, just like a lot of folks who are probably listening uh, to this podcast that they might've seen their family in business. And, and I saw the ups and the downs of, 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 being business owners. And it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And uh, so my hat is off to everybody who endeavors to ever try that out because my goodness, it's work. And 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 that intersected with growing up in the South. So we're entrepreneurs. These are folks. You know, I'm I am coming right out after that. You know, civil rights movement is you know when I'm born. So I'm coming into a moment in time where people are thinking, well, what do we do now? We have the right to vote, you know, and that's just in the '60s, right? Right. So you know, we're still not that far away from really having opportunities to really branch out and to feel a full. Force of you know um, economic opportunity, getting access into universities. These affirmative action things only start coming into the seventies. We know women were denied even getting up checking accounts. Those things didn't start to come into the seventies. CRA, which is the banking. So in a moment in time, I'm born where this possibility opens right. up, and I'm in the south, and I'm still faced with and standing inside of the, you know, underneath the shadow of former plantations or, you know, places where um, people have been lynched in in my community. So there is this juxtaposition of a lot of promise, and then there's a lot of history um, and a lot of things that we don't really want to talk about that I still see every day the remnants of and the experiences of. And so I, you know, Set out um, thinking I would be in politics. That's what I studied in school, and um, quickly got into thinking more about money. I mean, if you're going to think about the political landscape, you really need to think about what's the motivation behind that landscape? What's underneath it, these decisions that people are making? And a lot of times it is about where the resources are and right. who gets to keep those. Where that power is. And so I wanted to um, better my community. I wanted to support the innovators and change makers and um, just brilliance that I saw all around me. But I also saw that there was this gap of being able to get access to the resources that people needed. And I couldn't understand why, because I'm thinking, well, I'm from here. Shucks, I'm brilliant, and so where where is the resourcing here? And it took me down this really long road that got me all of these fellowships and all of these university um, appointments and and board seats and so forth. Thinking about really a deep curiosity about what we do next once we come out of if we're if we're at a place in the '60s and '70s where we're at a place. And I would say, really more earnestly, '70s, um, where we're at a place where we're saying we want to put policies in place that that erase and change the impacts of racial bias in multiple areas throughout, you know, government and um, at the federal level down locally, that we want to do something different. So we have affirmative action, which we know, uh, Kimberly, we talked about earlier. We just see the Supreme Court ruling where it's as if that isn't, you know, that we don't need that kind of law anymore. And I would say, no, we're just getting to a place, right? We're just at a at a place right now where we do need, we do need more. And in fact, and you know, not less, we need, yeah. we need to double I mean, down more on one point. I did yeah. a
0: little research on what happened in California when about 25 years ago, they eliminated affirmative action here in this state, which is... Kind of, I didn't live here then, so it seems kind of crazy to me because this is a pretty liberal state and I was surprised by that. But it has taken, so what happened was immediately after that happened, Mm -hmm. they saw a 40% reduction in Black and Hispanic student enrollment immediately. Then they started trying to put into place ways to get around it with holistic entry and looking at, you know, student by student who's been disadvantaged, but it's taken them two decades to make up the lost ground at UCLA and they still haven't yeah. made it up. So, yeah. I don't I don't understand why a lot of people think that, you know, I think some people may say, "Well, racism is done now. We had a black president. You know, it's gone. There's no need for all this other, you know, uh, stuff." I personally don't agree with that, but I would like you to maybe tell me a little bit about how you think Education factors into helping people get to the next rung. I mean, if they aren't, you know, it's no fault of their own. They may be in a disadvantaged community where they don't have the educational resources that are needed to get them into a Stanford or a Harvard or any school. So, I mean, this is a complicated topic and I don't know the answers. I know we have to talk with our votes. I know that. Mm -hmm. but. How do you, we deal with this kind of backwardness? I mean, right now, because I, I think it, it it will continue to shrink then what you're trying to do by, you know, getting more financial resources to people if the people who yeah. would help you do that aren't even going to be there because they can't even get into college now.
1: It's a devast it's a devastating decision, Kimberly. I agree with you on that. I mean and what you hit on is so important because it takes away that pipeline of opportunity and access. We know that when you get the education you you not only are learning but you're expanding your network right that network is so incredibly important when you are looking for the capital that you need to start your business or when you are trying to get that business going and and that network has the kind of talent that you need to staff that that company or your potential business partners are coming from there I don't know how many stories we hear from people who started up their company and they say oh yeah I met my business partner partner in such and such class at school. So we we take that off the table instantly when we do this. We also know that in that, this number, this piece that I talk about, which is the wealth gap, that that piece around income, right? So there is a correlation between if you get the right education, you are going to be more likely to get a higher earning position. If you don't have that kind of income coming in, that's a higher income, then that wealth gap continues to expand, expand, expand. And, and, and education, we know, is one way that we can determine whether or not you're going to get that income that, you know, you might need. I think the other thing, though, is the pipeline to those businesses. So instantly when we when we cut off the the movement, um, the affirmative action to the universities, we're also tying the hands of the folks who are in corporate America who are looking for talent right. to be able to come in because now they don't have the talent pool to really pull from. And we know when we see the acceleration of steam programs and so forth, that we already don't have the kind of workforce that we need. Now we're even disadvantaging ourselves, you know, even more more. So I, I think that the, the impact of the Supreme Court decision, you know, is, is, is huge and it changes the complexion of what we're doing with this work. I think it also softens for people. Let me take that back. I hope it does not soften or change for people the understanding of the importance around supporting diversity
0: right and I mean that's I'm with you what I'm worried about is that this for some people not me but for some people that it becomes a validation that diversity is not something we all need to strive for that it's you know it'll work itself out every man for himself or every woman for her herself and that this is you know Everything's good now. We're all good, right? Because the Supreme Court said so. And that is their validation. I mean, whatever you think about Joe Biden or you don't, I mean, I think he said, you know, this is not a good court. Well, I would tend to agree agree with that, but that's just me. But you know, I think some of these things are going to be hard to come back from. And so we then have to do other things. So universities are going to have to do other things to get around it so they can help disadvantaged students in a one-off way per student. Corporate policies are going to have to become more proactive in, you know, trying to be inclusive. And I, I hope they continue to do that. I wanted to ask you, because I think you're doing a couple of very interesting things, I do want to talk a little bit. I I want everyone to understand you're CEO of Runway and you are helping people get startup capital. And in some of your talks and things that I've listened to, you talk about the non-extractive approach to business capital that repairs racial injustice. And again, I think this is tying into what we're just talking about now, is if you come from a family or you're part of a circle through connections you make at university or whatever, you may have more access to things because of those connections. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake up call for women, to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today. Can you, A, tell us a little bit about Runway and what you're doing to help people and how people could access that through you who may be entrepreneurs out there listening right now? And then also a little bit, I would like to hear about your theory about this extractive and non-extractive access.
1: Yes. So you're right, Kimberly, the through line from what we were just talking about from the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. And one of the things that we just highlighted was the the access to relationships at university that you lose we, we highlighted the, you know, income earning potential that starts to diminish. All of those things and, and, and many other things, innovation, policymakers, we lose a lot when we don't put people into the opportunity to learn. And I mean, well.
0: we're losing some very bright stars that could go out into the world and change our lives. That's right. That's right. And that that amalgamation of
1: numbers and and ideas that we just said creates what we call the racial wealth gap. And I, I really don't love the term gap because it seems like it's just a little bitty thing, but really it's really huge. And it, 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 Talks about lack of income. It talks about, you know, real estate being undervalued when you're going to go and get your um, appraisals done. It talks about ways where the equity in your business may not be valued at the same way. You know, it talks about all manner of different ways where wealth gets unevenly distributed because of racial bias. And it looks like um, at the time when I started Runway, this was a piece of data that was so new, and at, at, when I when to say this is maybe about six or seven years ago, the data has since been updated, but the number then was that white people had $141,000 in wealth, and Black families had about $11,000, and this <gasps> is including the wealthiest, wealthiest that you could think of, right, and on both sides of the equation, so there's, you know, I like to say, okay, it's P. Diddy, and all my cousins, yeah, exactly, and, and, you know, in that, in that number, and it's about you know, ten, eleven thousand dollars. And then you've got you know, uber, uber, wealthy, wealthy folks, or whatever, billionaire folks on the other side, and then it's all your cousins in there, right? And still, the number lays out to this disparity between you know, almost 13 times, 14 times more than the other. And so, what happens when people tell you to start your business? Well, you know, the first thing they say is, Oh, it's a great idea. You should borrow money from your friends and your family. And
0: then you're looking around thinking, What friends? (laughs) What what family? family Who's got an extra 40K to give me, right? 40 k for me to get this going.
1: So we have a set of instructions that sound, you know, pretty innocent, but then in practice and application, what we realize is that the inability to actually make sure that people have the same wealth means that the start-off instructions are not the same, really. And we have found that um, African-Americans, they're denied loans two times more than, you know, other folks who are out there pursuing... Black people receive less than um, 1% of venture capital. And here's the thing. This one, this piece of data that I just got from a great friend of mine, Melissa Bradley, is so wonderful because this one is interesting. It cost a Black entrepreneur $250,000 more to just get to the same position as a white entrepreneur. And uh-huh. here's where the money comes from. They're spending that money going to conferences. They're spending that money buying, you know, time with consultants and the cost of the actual capital. so the the interest rate on the loans is much higher.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask you that. Is that the fact because oh t- oh, absolutely. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so a quarter
1: of a million dollars more just to get to the same spot because of those biases. Right. So that friends and family round of money, it's not there. And so we're asking entrepreneurs to start Without the same ingredients, without the same opportunities, and I know everybody doesn't have the same exact things, but we have to do more than just pretend that we do. We have to acknowledge that, no, it's really vastly different, and that is going to affect the outcome, meaning that we're not going to have the kinds of companies, the kinds of talent, and uh, the things that we need to really move our economy forward in the future if we're not being serious right now about where racial bias inside of the financial system has played. This role over periods of time and has not even corrected that. Th-
0: this is an intangible, but what about you know mentorship too? Oh, a hundred percent. You know, mentorship is so important, and if if it's not available because of so all the things we're talking about now, but there just aren't enough people to mentor.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, not enough mentorship access into the marketplace. I mean, there's so many things. You know, if you've got family, friends, people around you who have started a business, even if it's not the exact same business that you've been in, that's a great mentor opportunity. But if everybody in your family has never had that opportunity, remember we were talking about what it was like just getting the access to vote, right, in the '60s and yeah. '70s. Uh, you know, access that continues to get rolled back at different ways and and forward. But the point is, is that you lose the mentorship. You lose the opportunities for growth. You lose the opportunity to actually grow that company in ways that might be really thoughtful because you don't, you, you how would you even get shelf space? How would you get into the marketplace if you're relegated to only over here and only in right. this place? And so- opportunities for education that we were talking about before helps to alleviate some of those things. It says, okay, you're going to leave home. You're going to go to school. You're going to meet different people. And those are going to be some of the baseline ways where you can start to build some relationships that may help bridge some of these gaps. But then when we get out into the world and we say, okay, the rest of it is on you now. You got a business idea. You got something else. You got to go out here and make it happen. But there isn't anything to work with. Right. So um, runway tries to solve that point. We try to step in and we want to be your friends and family. We want to give you the mentorship. We want to give you the business planning and support. And we want to give you the kind of capital that recognizes the historical information. that I just shared that recognizes that, oh, you won't have friends and family to give you this kind of startup money. And it should feel like what a friend or family would have given. You.
0: Now, are you guys contributing the capital, you and your co-founders contributing the capital yourselves? Or are you raising capital from other places to give the entrepreneur? Yeah. And is this yeah. a 501c3 or is this a profitable company? What is the makeup of it exactly?
1: Right, right, right. So we are 501c3 and we are raising capital from, you know, accredited um, investors and we are um, and there are a couple of other entities inside of all of those things to manage all of all, all of that um, and be legally compliant to do it, but the front facing piece of our work is a philanthropic organization and no, we do not make
0: money. No, <laughs> yeah, no. That, because seeing, so. cause it sounds like You'd, otherwise, you'd be like a private equity or a venture capitalist, you know, taking a stake in the company. Exactly. And this
1: is really about what we're talking about around patient, non-extractive kinds of capital. I think that was something that you mentioned earlier. So we're talking to people who, you know, who have the kind of welfare institutions that we might be working with or, you know, ultra high net worth individuals who are thinking, all right, this is a part of something that I want to do, a part of my whole portfolio of things. It's a small percentage percentage. percentage for them, but it is really substantive, you know, for the communities that are receiving that particular capital. And we're really just talking about, you know, fifty thousand dollars or so, so a micro sort of amount, but it's the way in which we're putting that capital out. And then we're stair stepping people into other opportunities of of debt and then even equity investments further along. But that first tranche of money, that friends and family round is usually sweet spot around thirty, forty thousand dollars is. dollars And
0: you're educating them as well as the best way to kind of grow this company, have a business plan. On both sides. On both
1: sides, Kimberly, there's education happening for the entrepreneur about how do you want to use that money? What's the most, you know, strategic and potent way to really make this work, to get to where you want to go that honors your vision and your goals? And we're talking to our investment community about what it means to actually be putting these kinds of resources into play, into community, and how it does How it does change the dynamics of power, how it changes access to information, how it moves a community forward by acknowledging seeing their brilliance and saying, I want to double down. I want to be a part of where you all are going. It can can be a complete game changer for a community who has been excluded and historically marginalized to turn and see people say, I want to see you grow. And I don't need more than the principal back. That's fine for me right Right. now because of what has happened in this community. That's what we're really talking about.
0: So let me ask you a question. I'm a minority. Let's just say I'm a minority, a woman who I want to start some sort of shop or some sort of business, whatever it might be. And I come to you, A, how do I find you? Is there a website? How do people get to Runway? How do they find you? How do they apply who are the kinds of people that you're helping out? Yeah, I I love that
1: question. Go to runway dot family, and that's the extension dot family, and you'll you'll get a chance. There's one button that says I'm an entrepreneur, and you can click that button, and it'll take you through a pathway that describes how to apply and what kinds of things we're looking for. And then there's another button if you go to that same website and you say I'm an investor, and it takes you through another pathway to learn more about what it means to be placing capital and b- building this this really beautiful. Beloved community that we're we 're putting together, and for those entrepreneurs that are really interested, you know some of the things that we do there inside of the program is a lot of you know business education and making sure that we are um, solid in you know understanding your financials, very solid in understanding the overall vision, the market changes, and feel really great about talking about those kinds of things and what happens, and this is for, in, this happens to anybody, but certainly it happens with the, the entrepreneurs that I work with, is that there has been so much money trauma and shame and blame that it clouds what the vision of using the capital sometimes, it clouds even where you think you might even be able to grow. And so we spend a lot of time, I mean, I think this is sort of part, you know, the alchemy of this is, piece of education the other part holding your hand and crying right. with you as you get through it it's a scary thing it's scary. it's scary it's scary we're doing all that and we're also setting the table to make the investment and we're then going out and raising the capital so we're doing the whole smorgasbord of all of the things
0: so i want to make a point here for everyone who's listening if you go to Runway.Family and you're entrepreneur, then Jessica and her team are going to help you figure out if your concept is is valid and good and how they can make it really materialize into something. But if you happen to be someone who can be an investor or contribute money in some way, this is a 501c3. So this is a charitable contribution, which is a tax deduction for you. If you're a family foundation or you have a charitable trust, this sounds like something that could be a good vehicle for, you know, putting your money into that you will get tax advantages from. So there is a lot of upside for the investors as well, besides the altruism of helping somebody do uh, create a business and contribute to the economy. I want to touch upon something you just said, because I was listening to you your most recent podcast with the two other people that you collaborate with on that podcast And one of the things you were talking about, and I might not be phrasing it in the right terminology, but you mentioned about Mm -hmm. the trauma and that people are just trying to get by, right? So if you come from a mindset of you're just trying to make it through the day and get keep the lights on, and then you're trying to create a business, it's hard for you to have almost a vision of abundance and or not be afraid of losing money. And also to let your creative juices flow because you're so used to just being in that box of survival. I'd like you to talk yes. a little bit about that and if I got that right. Oh, you got it right. Oh, my goodness.
1: And man, I, I when you were just saying it, I was feeling that feeling all over again. And just understanding at different places in my life. Where I've even felt yeah. where my creativity was stifled and stuck um, because I wasn't operating from a framework of abundance. I couldn't see what was possible, you know, because I was I was I couldn't what they say couldn't see the trees for the forest. Right, like I was 100%. so. Hundred percent. I couldn't even see going forward. And what I love about the Believe in You money and the work that we're doing at Runway is it creates that spaciousness, right? It gives people this opportunity to have resources and to feel like, all right, now I can do some of the planning. A lot of times we're not able to make the right decisions or the thoughtful plans because we don't have the right resourcing at that moment. We've got a great vision and then we're, you know, moving money here and moving moving here and trying to figure out this or trying to figure this thing out. And one, you know, one traumatic incident sets everything all right. the way back.
0: I think a lot of people too, when they're trying to build these businesses, they might try to lean on credit card debt, you know, that, you know, or they're yeah. trying to come up with money from all kinds of different resources It yeah. may in the end not be helpful to their overall growth of net worth if they can't, right. you know, get this thing to fly. And, I can see how you know like I know when I had a, a like a, it wasn't more than 10 years ago I had you know this traumatic armageddon divorce which everybody who listens to me knows about but I was you know in a place where I was really up against it I had a lot of debt I was waiting for my you know rent check to clear before I put gas in my car I didn't have a lot of headspace to think about doing something like the fiscal feminist I was just trying to make sure that my kids and I actually had a roof over our head for the next month and that I could, you know, I was trying to find a job and I was in my 50s and it was, you know, it wasn't pleasant. So when you have all these real-time problems and no one to kind of give you a hand with mentoring and money and advice, it's really hard to be creative. So that's a really good point that you make that people don't really talk about much.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And I I like the idea of thinking about it, just as you said, like that combination of the mentorship, the resourcing and to do some planning with you around your work. So uh, around your business and um, to think about well, where are those places where, you know, is it now time to, to get another job or is it time to take something else off the plate right now or to to make those decisions together? And so, again, runway would be a part of all of those things. And there is no way, you know, in the life cycle of some of the the, the business deals we have about fifty companies in our portfolio. We're hearing, you know, all of the things right now of life happening, um, and nothing was, you know. I'll tell you, one of the hardest things for me and um was COVID. Because here it is, I have this portfolio of majority African-American uh, companies. I already know that they have don't have the same access to capital relationships. Um, that's a part of what our theory of change is all about, is right. that they don't, so we can do something different. So I already know that they're not able to go to their private banking relationships and figure out you know the PPP or figure out any of those kinds of things. They're going to need us to do that kind of work. And We ended up at that moment in the first sort of round of PPP, even though it didn't explicitly exclude solo entrepreneurs, um, which is 90 percent of black businesses are these solo entrepreneurs where they are the one employee. Right. It didn't make it really clear how they could apply. So it took the second round of PPP before a lot of uh, of the businesses that we know of um, were able to get resourcing six months without, you know, money coming in and being able to move when you're already financially disadvantaged. And that's hard for
0: any business.
1: It's hard for any business. It's a killer for these businesses. And so we were able in the first 30 days to raise additional funds from this fantastic community of folks wrapped around Runway. And we started making universal basic income payments. And um, so you, one of the questions we were going to talk about today was policy. We'll talk about it next time. right? But we did universal basic income payments and... um, Um, There are a lot of cities. I think Stockton, California has a basic income pilot. Oakland has one. There are a lot of cities where the mayors are using their resources to make small sort of subsidized payments uh, to people. And what we found during that time when we we did the first UBI payments for entrepreneurs that had been done, you know, that we know of in the country. What we found was 100% of our businesses stayed open during that time. So when the government didn't put any money out, we were making cash payments directly to our portfolio. And they used those resources for anything, for groceries, for child care if they needed it. But they also could use that money if they wanted to put it back in their business, they could. And a lot of people used it to pay for a little more time working with the marketer to pivot to get more online in mm-hmm. that season and to figure out you know, some of those kinds of things. And so we saw a small amount of money keep businesses open, relatively small amount of money, We think it was like a thousand dollars direct payment, but a small amount of money that kept these businesses open and gave them the spaciousness back to this piece that we had before where mentally everything was just, you know, closing down on all of us. And it gave them the opportunity to say, okay. What can I do? How do I pivot? What does it look like today for me to be in business, you know, in this pandemic? What does enduring look like? What can I read? And we were there every step of the way negotiating new terms with, you know, their capital providers. We were looking at contracts. We were all in the mix of everything to make sure that they made it through. And I'm excited. All of those businesses made it through and are thriving and growing. But it takes that kind of knowing of the history uh, and the experiences to find the appropriate solution. And that's really what
0: I'm advocating for. And it's and, and it's an amazing example of with a little bit of infrastructure and help and knowledge and mentorship and funding. And I mean, it doesn't sound like you know you're throwing billions of dollars at these people. Yeah. Their inner drive and knowledge and enthusiasm and resilience are gonna make their businesses grow. You got a hundred percent. That's an amazing. Success rate during COVID. Incredible! I, the, they
1: they, they worked the, the Even the portfolio of companies started working together. And one example of this there um, is that we have a florist is a part of our portfolio, and then we have another company that does in town transportation and delivery services and so forth. And they partnered together. She said, "Well." I'll deliver all of the flowers or do do these things. You can take that off of your plate and I could use the revenue and it'll cost you less than having to manage, you know, the different vehicles and things. So they also find each other as a network of relationships. And during COVID, it even push that tighter together because they knew that they needed that in order to survive it. So it's certainly a testament to what the runway team and the community of investors around us um, who believe in us did, but also the entrepreneurs and what, like you said, when given the opportunity of mentorship, of resource, you know, their ingenuity and innovation and creativity carries it the rest of the way. Right, right.
0: And I mean, that just proves the whole thesis. I do want to talk about government uh, policy and the role that they can play. But before we get to that, I do want to ask you one more question because, you know, I'm very focused on women, women of all genres. And I wanted to know, like in this runway, how does it break down between women and men entrepreneurs? Do women have even more problems or are they as in the mix as men or is this more men than women or more women than men? Yeah,
1: well, I want to just first just give a shout out to the incredible team of women who really lead runway and runways um, work around business education. I mean, these are women who have been in finance and they're also artisans and, you know, mothers and, you know, teachers of all different kinds of elk and relationships. So I, I, what I love about having a team of, of folks in finance that are also women who are doing this work is that intersectionality that Kimberly Crenshaw Coin this term uh, intersectionality, which looks at the movement of race and class and privileges and gender and all these things together. There's a way where this group of people that works at runway are naturally just thinking about those things because it's them. And so they're moving from a place of what would I like and what would I really need inside of this? And it, I think it it shows in the, in the, you know, long terms, it shows in the documentation, it shows in every, in every area. So I just want to just honor them in this and say Yes, it's it's a little different for women entrepreneurs, for sure. I mean, we already know that um, broadly women are, you know, some of the same experiences that we have around denied loans. Women are also denied loans. And then you add the racial component yeah, onto The racial that.
0: component makes it, you know, a lot worse. Then you can just
1: see it just completely exacerbates, yeah. right? Like it's, it com- it's, you know, everything we know about women, then you put race on that part of it. And then you're just like, you know, blown out of the water. So, so we're, but we also have a lot of, you know, African-American women who are really highly educated, who are coming out of working in corporate America with incredible skills and are then turning to starting their businesses. They maybe have gotten burned out in the corporate land and are like, you know, I want to recover and take my time back. And when I talk to these entrepreneurs, uh, the women in business what I find is that they're looking for flexibility for their family. They're looking for however they decide to show up for for family, whether that is, you know, um, having elderly you know parents and being a caregiver in that direction of their life or maybe younger people in their life that they're working with. They are very much thinking about how do I have the flexibility and the time and resource to be able to show up as the best daughter, as the best right, friend, right. as the best partner. That I can show up. And that's not always the same equation that I have the men talking about that, you know, I I get I get a chance to equally listen to everybody. But where the conversation tends to go when I talk to women is they're managing their need to be present and available for multiple people in their lives. And um, I think that that part of it changes how many hours and what they're able to give to their businesses as well. It's not the exact same amount um, of time that they're able to always give if you're stopping right now because you've got to take you know, your mom to their doctor's appointments or you've got to be available for these kinds of different things, which we want to be available for. But it does change the complexion of what can I do with my business? And I see a lot of folks working, um, extra, extra hard. Yeah. To overcome that, but I also see a lot of really strategic and thoughtful partnerships and collaborations to help you know alleviate some of those things. Whether it's sharing office space together, or sharing an admin person together, or the you know the example that I gave of two businesses that had needed something from one another and then collaborating there, I see women also leaning more into let's work together, let's 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 you know do something jointly to help um, manage some of those pain. that that we might see. So we have a huge, our portfolio of entrepreneurs um, at Runway, I think maybe around 80% women. And so we tend to get a lot more women. Uh, And the women are fantastic in the way of seeing the full spectrum of their businesses where they're going to do the work of you know, showing up, taking some of the classes, meeting with some of their advisors, really using all of these different pieces—not only just the capital, but you trying right. to really use the suite of services and things um, around them to move things forward. So I see that, and the and the guys are equally wonderful and and amazing in the work as well. But I I, I tend to find with some of the. Men in our portfolio, that imposter syndrome piece doesn't come up as much, right, right? Right. You know that part around that that doesn't come up as much, and they tend to have another partner or somebody at home or somebody somewhere else that's also managing some of those other areas that I just mentioned. And so
0: this kind of crosses across all lines, right? So seventy five percent of all household chores, caregiving, senior giving, caregiving, all of that is done by women, even when they're the uh, Primary breadwinner. So I always say to everybody, and I'm going to say to everybody today, you have to advocate for yourself in the micro level as well, not just on the corporate level or the business level, but you need to be telling your partners, hey, you know, we need to have a division of labor here. And it has to be that I'm not doing 75% of it because that is just not fair. And I think we as women, it's kind of like when you mentioned the imposter syndrome, we have to we feel we have to be perfect. We feel we have to be all things for all men. And honestly, it's it's just not true. And the only people that suffer from that is us because we get burnt out and we get tired. And then we don't get to self realize because we're helping everybody else self realize. So especially for entrepreneurs who are trying to build something, women, you're trying to do this for yourself, for your families. You know, don't be afraid to go home and tell your husband, your partner, or whoever you live with that maybe they need to like cook dinner four times a week and pick up the kids at school or whatever it is. It can't always just be you. So I do want to say this, this runway organization is a really meaningful. And so I think everybody needs to check it out who might be interested in starting a business and especially for people who want to contribute. Um, it's making, I think, a big difference in some people's lives in enabling minorities to get on the map of entrepreneurship. But I'm going to ask you one question now, because we obviously are going to have to do, I think, quarterly podcasts, just A, to figure out what you're up to next and what award you just won, because I'm sure there's about 50 more that are going to come down the pike. But I am really interested in what you think, what role can the government play in addressing this intersection of wealth and racial equity and justice? What policies should they be doing? And what as individuals can we be doing to get the government to listen up and start doing these things? Because I feel like some days I just listen to the news and I try and, you know, as a wealth manager, I listen to a lot of financial news all day. But some days I just think to myself, like, we are off track here. Like we're losing the plot a little bit. So tell me about that. What role can the government play and how the heck do we get them to do it? (laughs) <laughs> right that's the that's a tricky that's the that's the tricky
1: part and i definitely think the more engaged we are as voters and we continue to advocate for you know a more more complexity actually is going to be helpful for us so instead of just thinking of the duality of just black and white and and, and so forth really thinking about there are a group of people in this country a community um, indigenous black communities that have been here for forever and have not gotten the same opportunities to grow. And we have to really honor and respect the history of that and think about the solutions that don't pan over it or gloss over, sweep it under the rug, but acknowledge, okay, this happened. Does this solution actually help us challenge and change the historical facts around what happens when over a period of time you don't have the resource that you've had your you know we've had communities um african American communities that have been you know bulldozed for urban revitalization, putting interstates through you know black enclaves and all myriad of different yeah. things that have changed what's happened to entrepreneurship and so sometimes when I talk to our entrepreneurs, I say it's not on you really to solve this problem this is an us problem. This is, a, this is a government, this is a community-wide problem, and um, and we should be about our business to doing. So I would say continue to lift that message up and advocate for a more comprehensive view of how we finance and support, you know, Black and Indigenous communities. Loan forgiveness is the easiest thing to do, you know. I mean, you could, the, the government can easily set up, you know, programs that say, you know, 50,000 and under, if you're coming from historically marginalized community, we're going to do loan forgiveness. And you could certainly incentivize um, other lenders to, to take that on because they know that those you know, debts are going to be forgiven at some point. Um, we already know about loan guarantee programs that the SBA does. And I think being able to extend that out, and I, I think I'm pretty sure they have. I, I just have to go back and remember but that they have extended that out to go not just to uh, financial depository institutions but you know other um, you know nonprofit loan funds or could be for- for-profit loan funds as well so guarantee programs certainly help to be able to put the resources out and have the the backing of our tax dollars to do things like that so loan forgiveness loan guarantees work I mentioned UBI payments and people don't think about universal basic income payments Um this this is at a local level that could be really interesting but as i mentioned it's it's direct payments that can be used for anything, but what we have found is is that people might use it for you know child care they might use it for other you know for groceries all of that's important but they also are using it to support their their businesses and their and their dreams and so to be able to have that extra amount coming in that helps take care of family things and other kinds of expenses that you can't take care of gives you the spaciousness to be able to make you know investments and in, and in, into your own vision and dreams so I think UBI payments are another one there's another place where that that we often talk about and that is uh, CRA which is the community Reinvestment act and this is the piece of legislation that comes out in the 70s that is telling banks and um, depository institutions that get insurance from the government that you need to be lending to historically marginalized communities particularly if this is your footprint so if you've got a brick-and mortar and you are are located in this area that's a black community you ought to be loaning money into that community you ought to be investing in that community and we need a whole big old legislation that tells us that that they should be doing this and that legislation does not have the level of teeth that it really needs it doesn't have the accountability measures in there and some of the um Ways that they measure their impact, we can't actually hear about those things. So they don't want to, you know, a lot of these depository institutions don't want to tell you, well, we only made loans to this amount of people, right? So So there's
0: no accountability, really.
1: There's no accountability. And we have no real way of understanding outside of the very large SBA, you know, uh, 7A kind of programs that might work for minorities, but it's going to include women, all women inside of that. It's going to include. A whole swath of different people that might fit a min- um, you know a, a minority category, but it won't necessarily tell us: Are you actually supporting? Black entrepreneurs. But that's what CRA, when it was coming out in the 70s, was meant to work on. So the legislation doesn't have the rigor that it needs for us to really look at um, whether or not these depository institutions that are, you know, using federal uh, taxpayer dollars as a way of insurance, pool of insurance, are doing the things that we're expecting them to do, you know, or not. So I think CRA is another place that um, we could see, You know, more movement and growth and across all of these different programs. And you can you can go. I think about policy as a continuum. There's local policy, state level policy, federal policy. And then you've got all the agencies inside of there. Right. Right. That could be. You know, doing different things that you could be, we could be advocating. Some of it is not even a huge political decision, but really the administrators um, at those particular funds could just make little tweaks and little changes and things like that, but the cultural competency is going to be really important. You want to have people who are working in the policy making decisions, whether it's the people who we've elected or the people who are administering these these, uh, programs, to have a real understanding of the culture, to have an understanding of the historical information and be designing and creating programs that meet those things and loan forgiveness loan guarantees UBI CRA those are some of the ways that are out there but I, I, there is a continuum of different opportunities that could be so helpful
0: it would be great if there was a place where people could just look at all the possible things that could be done that would be helpful and then make sure that when they look at candidates who they're voting for that they're aligned with those ideas and you know also Those candidates do appoint people in administrative positions. So, you know, it always comes back to this. You have to be very intentional and thoughtful with how you vote. And you should be thinking about, you know, who's going to affect change and try to make some moves here to level the playing field, especially in our current environment where, as the most recent Supreme Court decision shows, is that the playing field may be Going backwards a little bit, yeah, and we need to fight against that. I hope that people paid attention to that and now are aware that things are kind of going in the opposite direction, and so that will influence them in the upcoming, whether it's a local election or a state election or a federal election, to really be proactive in voting with their, you know, their heart and also their their mind about what we are going to try to change so that we don't keep going down this path now where we're eliminating all the progress that we made. Yeah. So we all have to take our own personal responsibility to be proactive and not to just like think somebody else is going to go vote for this or care about this. Like we all need to care about this if we want there to be continued change.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I would say the big takeaway here is we're looking for the kinds of representation from candidates um, and elected officials that are going to be putting out non-extractive patient capital, that you're going to create the kinds of programming, either you know through their research or working with you know folks like Runway or whomever it is that you want to partner with. There are lots of folks that are out here that are doing some incredible work, but that you're going to have that as a mandate, that it must be non-extractive, that it must be patient kinds of capital in order for this to really work.
0: Well, I think Jessica Norwood should run for president, but I'm just saying so when she comes back from Jamaica <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that next but Jessica, thank you so much for today. I mean, I just want to run through a few things so first of all, if you want to check out runway, go to runway dot family you must buy Jessica's book that's coming out on in october twenty twenty three and Jessica I'm assuming they can get it on Amazon and book-selling platforms.
1: all the places, all the places. So it's
0: called Believe in You Money, What Would the Economy Look Like If It Loved Black People? So this is a good title and not forgettable. Also, check her out on her podcast, Road to Repair. And she has, and you also have a website.
1: Yeah. So my personal website is jessicanorwood.com and you can see all things book and you can find the podcast there. And if you're interested, you know, in runway stuff, you can always go to runway's website, which is runway.family.
0: Well, this has been a very informative podcast. I would like to do a quarterly check-in with Jessica if she's up for it because I think she's a woman on the move doing some important things. We're all very jealous that she's living in Jamaica and we're not, but we can always get check-ins on how the weather is. Abundance. This is the abundance, man. I love it. I love it. And that's what, you know, we just want everyone to have optimism and abundance in their life. And, you know, no matter where you come from or what you look like, we're all the same and we're all trying to just get through this life and be productive contributing people and so I want as many people to be able to do that I want a a lot more women to be able to do that and in this particular podcast you know we all know from the statistics that black women really have the hardest road you know to to kind of go down because they they not only have the minority thing they're fighting against the race issue but they also have the woman issue So it's, you know, we need to be out there talking about this a lot. And so I'm going to keep talking about this a lot until y'all get tired of it or makes you go do something about it. But anyway, Jessica, you're awesome. Thank you so much for your time and your knowledge and your enthusiasm and all the good works that you're doing. We are very lucky in this world to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you for listening today to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And I would really appreciate if you could also rate and review it. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at The Fiscal Feminist or check out the website FiscalFeminist.com.